Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's so nice to see you all today on Facebook Live. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, and today we are going to continue uh, our second and final in the series of Who is a Jew? And specifically looking in the modern context of the reform movement, uh, adopting what is called the, the patrilineal descent resolution. Uh, we'll go into what all these terms mean. Uh, so if that all was just like gobbledygook, that's OK. Um, well, hopefully this will all make sense by the end. So uh, first thing I'm going to do, I'll share my screen. Uh, and I want to do a uh, recap of our first session, which ought to be available as a recording. Uh, OK, hopefully you can see my screen right now. Um, and uh, a recap of what we did in our first session, which is looking at the historical context. Uh, I'll recap that. But first, just a word about me and my own biases uh, when it comes to this topic. So you are all aware. I shared this last time, but I know we'll have some people who are tuning in for the first time. So I, I will just share this as a reminder. So there is me, charming as always. I probably made the same not very good joke two weeks ago. I'll probably make it again next time I throw up a picture of myself. That's my goal for all of these sessions, right? Uh, but there's me. And here's a little bit about my background. Born to a Jewish father and a Catholic mother. Uh, my mother, uh, born in Poland, in fact, uh, to a family of Catholics. Uh, my vast side of the family still lives in Poland. That's a session for a different uh, study um, or a different topic. But uh, nonetheless, that is how I come into the picture. So I am the product of an interfaith marriage and an interfaith marriage where uh, my father was the Jewish one, my mother was not, which is significant when it comes to the topic of Jewish identity, as we discussed last week and as I'll touch on briefly uh, right now. But the real consequence of this is that you are listening right now to what some would consider to be a not Jewish, well, the whole thing would be in the quotes, I suppose, a not Jewish rabbi, um, or you would put quotes around the rabbi too. But nonetheless, based upon the fact that I was not born to a Jewish mother and I have not converted um, as one would who is not born Jewish, uh, then for a lot of the Jewish world, I am not considered to be Jewish. Why am I sharing all of this? Because as I said um, last time that we met two weeks ago, that this is a touchy subject for a lot of us. Uh, and for folks who may find themselves in a similar position, um, I want you to know that, well, you're not alone, obviously. There are millions that, that fall into this category, or at least hundreds of thousands. Uh, but also, uh, it's my background as well. So I want to be upfront about that. And if this is something that you struggle with and feeling like maybe you're not authentically Jewish, whatever that might mean, uh, please do uh, 
give me a call, send me an email. I would love to talk to you. Last thing about me before we get into it, you know, it's certainly something that at different points in my life I've struggled with and asked myself the question, well, should I, even though I'm Jewish, <laughs> should I convert just so I can get beyond this? And my decision was no, uh, that I'm not going to do that. And I'm happy to talk through the process. That doesn't mean that has to be the decision for you, of course. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to, to talk about my rationale and, and why I am the way I am. But that all being said, let's uh, let's just quickly review last week, a summary from part one or last session two weeks ago. So patrilineal descent, these are the terms that get thrown around, patrilineal and matrilineal descent. Patrilineal uh, father uh, means follows the status of, of the father. So if I am I'm Jewish because my father was Jewish, for example, matrilineal descent, obviously the opposite, would follow the mother. Um, and uh, let's get to how that's significant. So the Torah, uh, if you read the accounts of the Torah or you just read the Torah, you'll see that the Torah follows patrilineal descent, meaning that, or it appears to follow patrilineal descent. And I throw in that word appears because the Torah doesn't really seem to know <laughs> what these terms are or think about them too hard or like define them. So, you know, it's not an intentional choice on behalf of the Torah, but, you know, if we're trying to like find a pattern here, patrilineal seems to be the one that follows, meaning it's based upon what your dad is. Uh, many examples, Israelite or Hebrew men, we can't really call them or we can't call them Jewish because that's just anachronistic for the time of the Torah. So you could say Israelite, but before that Hebrew. Uh, so uh, the examples uh, of folks in this category, marrying a Gentile, for lack of a better term, a, a non-Hebrew or non-Israelite uh, woman. And then the children that they produce uh, appear free of social stigma. So the Torah doesn't say anything bad about them. They seem to have just fine lives, be accepted in society fully without question. The Torah seems utterly unconcerned with them, uh, let alone disparaging them, saying these aren't really legitimate kids or something like that. The Torah could say that, but it does not. Um, so that's Torah. And then, you know, there's this thing from Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, but it's uh, some people, which comes in the Hebrew Bible, but not the Torah, that some folks have said, well, this is evidence for it because they want to find evidence somewhere in the Bible, even if you can't really see it in the Torah. Um, but as we talked about last week, that's it's not clear cut that that's really evidence for, for a shift to matrilineal. The first real concrete evidence we have comes from the Mishnah, which was uh, redacted or you know, written down uh, essentially around the year 200 of the common era. To be fair and to be clear about it, it doesn't mean that that is when the principle first appeared. They didn't just come up with everything right then and write it down that day. These are probably, or these are traditions that existed for presumably generations, plural, prior to being written and seen as authoritative. So how long was that? There, there's no there's theories, there's no clear way to know, but that is the concrete, that's the first example we have for the matrilineal principle um, is coming in about the year 200, so uh, of the common era. And then it's undisputed in the Mishnah, uh, you know, there's no uh, argumentation, there's no um, 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 minority opinion, it's just kind of taken as fact that uh, Jewish status follows the mother. Uh, rather than the father. So there's some shift between the Torah and this period. 
We don't know why. Um, there are theories for the cause, uh, but nothing conclusive. Uh, and that's kind of the, the great mystery here. But nonetheless, our takeaway as we move forward and look toward modernity is that once this was established from the year 200-ish that we have the written record of, uncontested uh, until modernity, meaning that it didn't really come up again. And no one ever said, are you sure about that? Uh, and we touched about this um, this very briefly at the end of the last session that you know, partly it was because it was almost a non-issue in the sense that if you think about history at this time, <laughs> this time being 2000 years almost, uh, you know, 1800 years, something like that, um, Jews were, were living in uh, well, segregated communities, for lack of a better term, uh, meaning, you know, and this is true in, in the Ashkenazi world, in the Sephardic world, uh, the Mizrahi world, uh, of Jews living among themselves in their own communities, oftentimes usually speaking their own language, wearing their own style clothes, eating their own foods, not that there wasn't sharing and, and um, communication between groups and, and neighbors, figurative neighbors, if not literal ones. Uh, but in general, society was segregated. So how would you, even if, first of all, there just weren't intermarriages as a model. So it didn't occur to anyone or probably wouldn't have, I'm going to do this thing that nobody does. Um, but even if you wanted to, they're very limited opportunities. Uh, you know, you weren't going to public school with a bunch of non-Jewish people that you would meet and mingle with and hit it off with. Those, those kinds of things just didn't happen, right? Um, and on top of this, you know, marriages oftentimes were arranged anyway. <laughs> you know, we can go on and on for all the reasons that this would just, there weren't that many opportunities for, for most of Jewish history uh, for this to be challenged or for it to really become an issue. Um, and in the times when it did happen, uh, in general, unfortunately, uh, most likely that, um, you know, the, the, the husband-wife, uh, if you can call them that, and I say that because marriage was really a religious affair, and there weren't either priests on one side or rabbis on the other or imams, uh, like, in the business of, of doing these kinds of marriages. Uh, so I don't know... I, if you if, if you cohabitate it, um, even if it, it was not a marriage as done by a religious uh, official, um, you were essentially shunned or ostracized from, from the communities. So, which is unfortunate, right? I, I'm not condoning that, but just giving an example of why then the status of the children that come from that marriage, no one's too concerned about that because they're not in the community. Um, again, unfortunate, but just a kind of a, the reality uh, and, and why this just was kind of for not forgotten about, but just wasn't an issue until, of course, it was. Uh, okay. Oh, sorry. Here are some uh, things there. And now we're going to jump ahead. Uh, and of course, in between that and 1983, um, you know, there's what's called emancipation of the Jewish communities, I'm focusing on Europe in particular here, uh, of being uh, invited to become citizens of their lands and to, you know, be part of the larger society and, uh, you know, leave the ghetto, leave the shtetl, um, go to the, the universities, have jobs in the, the fields that, uh, you know, traditionally were Jews were excluded from. And so you have all of this mingling and connections and you know, opportunities to be a part of the world. And of course, with that comes the opportunity to meet someone. Uh, and so that's what happens is that these kinds of marriages start to appear. And now, now that there's really a possibility for it. 
And with the rise of the, the modern nation state, then of course you can get married, uh, depending on the state, by someone who isn't a rabbi or a priest or an imam. Uh, you can yeah, go the, the cliche of going to the, the county courthouse or wherever, city hall, and you know it'll be some bureaucrat behind a window who will just put a, take your $17 or whatever, uh, put a stamp on the paperwork and poof, you're married. Um, <clears throat> so that becomes possible. Uh, all right, so here we're gonna go to the 1983 principle and then we'll backtrack a little bit. Um, and so here it is or the 1983 uh, resolution, I should say. Uh, I'll just read it quickly. You see, it's not too long. The Central Conference of American Rabbis, to find that at the bottom, uh, that is the Professional Organization of Reform Rabbis. It's the one all of your rabbis here at Temple are members of, as well as essentially all reform rabbis uh, in North America, uh, dues paying members. And one of the, thing, one of the many things that the, the organization does is put out resolutions, uh, policy positions like this. So here's this one, uh, declares that the child of one Jewish parent is under the presumption of Jewish descent. This presumption of the Jewish status of the offspring of any mixed marriage is to be established through appropriate and timely public and formal acts of identification with the Jewish faith and people. The performance of these mitzvot commandments serves to commit those who participate in them, both parent and child, to Jewish life. Depending on circumstances, Mitzvot leading toward a positive and exclusive Jewish identity will include entry into the covenant, acquisition of a Hebrew name. These are the examples of what those things would be. Um, the Torah study of bar or bat mitzvah. Sorry, I don't know why that says bar slash bar mitzvah, bar slash bat mitzvah. Uh, and Kabbalah Torah, which is uh, one term for the confirmation ceremony, which takes place in many reform synagogues or at 10th grade, some do it at 12th grade, but sometime in high school, uh, a group ceremony of committing to Judaism formally. Uh, for those beyond childhood claiming Jewish identity, other public acts or declarations may be added or substituted after consultation with their rabbi. This is it. So a few notes about this resolution. And this resolution, by the way, was perhaps the most controversial resolution um, in, in North American Jewish history. Uh, that sounds like a bold claim, but uh, I, I think I can back it up. And I am also including among that the decision to ordain women which shouldn't be controversial, but was at the time uh, and was you know, groundbreaking, earth shattering uh, that the reform movement did this uh, uh, despite uh, the other movements uh, at the time uh, saying this is not possible, this is not Jewish, this is not acceptable. Um, and of course the conservative movement that followed, orthodoxy is not there. Uh, but even with that, uh, uh, that this, I would argue, is, is even more significant in terms of the, the controversy it generated. We'll talk about why. Uh, so a few notes about it. The resolution, it covers interfaith families regardless of which parent is Jewish. So note, if you look at the resolution, it doesn't say the children of Jewish fathers and uh, non-Jewish mothers. It just says the children of an interfaith uh, marriage. Doesn't matter uh, the gender of the parents or which one is which. Uh, and the resolution also creates a new requirement. So <clears throat> a child with a Jewish mother who does not engage in Jewish acts, for example, interfaith family, uh, child, uh, Jewish mom, non-Jewish father, uh, and the family either does not adopt any religious practice or adopts the father's religious practice, let's say. So 
that child nonetheless is Jewish according to Orthodox and conservative movements, meaning if you're born to a Jewish mother, you're Jewish, period. Even if you don't know you're Jewish, you're Jewish because it is simply something that is passed down. It's not something that you get a, a really a say in. You're simply born that way. However, according to this resolution, that child is not Jewish because that child does not engage in these public acts of identification uh, that were listed in the resolution. So it creates a different requirement that it's not enough to just be born with a Jewish parent. You actually have to do something Jewish, uh, which they gave some examples there, but it's, it's not exactly clear what specifically, but you have to be Jewish in your practice, in your life in some way for it to count. Otherwise, it's, it's not enough to simply be born that way. Um, so this is where we're gonna backtrack. You may be wondering, um, what happened to children <laughs> born before 1983? Uh, and first of all, the resolution, I presume, is meant to be a retroactive, meaning, you know, if you were born in 1982, it's not like, well, I'm not Jewish because I wasn't born, I was born too early by a year or something. Uh, no, no, no. It's saying, like, this is how we see these people um, uh, in our community, regardless of, of when it was. But, you know, this still, the question is, if you were a child under these circumstances born in 1954, what, what happened to you? Or how did, how did that work? How did the synagogue uh, treat you? Uh, and for that, we have to go back to 1947. And we could, of course, go back further and further. But here is the 1947 resolution. So it says that children of non-Jewish mothers must convert in line with what orthodoxy and conservative movement, uh, other Jewish movements uh, say to this day. Uh, so that's the traditional uh, stance. You're not Jewish. However, the 1947 resolution decided that conversion could look a little different than we think of it. Conversion typically means that you go before a Beit Din, a panel of rabbis who ask you questions, you answer them, then the rabbis you know, affirm that they are satisfied uh, with, with your studies and your, your theology and whatever it was that they asked. And then you go to mikvah, you immerse in, in the ritual uh, water of the mikvah. Uh, and then upon that, that is how you become Jewish. That is the process of conversion. When someone says, you know, I'm converting to Judaism, that's what they're talking about, going through those steps. And of course, the classes and the preparation to get to that point. But those are the formal acts that uh, count as conversion. But 1947, they redefined conversion to something very different. And here it is quoting. With regards to infants, the declaration of the parent to raise them as Jews shall be deemed sufficient for conversion. So if you know, I'm, a child is born, baby's born, a couple days old, I mean, it could be a couple months old, I don't know what, the, what time limit they're going to put on it here, you get the idea. And Parents meet with the rabbi at some point and say, we're planning to raise this child as Jewish. Done. That child is Jewish, even though they don't have a Jewish mother. Uh, good enough. Or it's not good enough. That's, they are now, they have now converted to Judaism simply by the parents saying, you know, yeah, we're going to, we, we want this child to be Jewish. Okay. For older children who didn't have that conversation, their parents didn't have the conversation with the rabbi, then they may attend religious school like their peers and the ceremony of confirmation at the end of the school course shall be considered in lieu of a conversion ceremony. Now, I mentioned a confirmation is often a 10th grade and they're saying at the end of the school course, 
Uh, a lot of synagogues, confirmation at 10th grade, that's the end of religious school. Obviously, the child still goes to 11th and 12th grade of public school or their, their day school, um, but uh, for their religious school component, they're done at 10th grade. If, I hope that, that that's clear. Uh, but they're saying that by going through the ceremony, by going to religious school, basically, um, you are now, um, you, you have counted as converting. Interesting, I think. A couple questions, though. When you treat confirmation as conversion, and again, confirmation is something everyone does, uh, or at least you know it's offered to everyone. It's not a special class for for uh, the kids, to, uh, students who may find themselves in this circumstance. Everyone does it, and it's not conversion. Confirmation ceremony is meant to really, you know, it's modeled after Christian practice, uh, but of confirming your faith, of saying, yes, I had a bar about mitzvah when I was younger. At this time, historically, Reform Judaism was still unsure of the bar bat mitzvah, in part because they felt 13-year-olds weren't quite old enough um, to, to make that commitment. So they decided sophomores in high school, that's, that's the time to go. We could talk about that, but that was the decision that, that there's a heightened level of maturity at that point. So confirmation is going to be the time where as a class, it's a public ceremony where the whole class of students that year, you know, commit to, to leading a Jewish life going forward. And some of them are uh, converting to Judaism at the same time. But some questions. Does the 10th grade student know that they are converting? And does the 10th grade student know that they, he or she was previously not considered Jewish prior to this ceremony? And I am guessing, it's unclear, but I'm guessing the answer to both questions is no, right? That this is meant as like a backdoor conversion, that we have these children who, according to their status, um, they're not technically Jewish, but we want them in our community. We're not about to tell them you're not welcome here. And we really don't want to tell them, hey, by the way, you're not really Jewish. So how can we get them in in a way that's respectful, that's you know not, not embarrassing them, um, and that will make us satisfied. And this is what they go with, that we are going to quietly convert you through a ceremony that's not conversion uh, and without you knowing it. So at the end of the day, by the time you uh, are done with your uh, religious school teaching in your high school, you are, by our definitions, just as Jewish as anyone else. Uh, and it won't be an issue for marrying or marriage, you know, or anything else, because, you know, again, 10th grade, so hopefully. Presumably, people aren't getting married at that age. Uh, this is the 1940s, right? But uh, presumably. Um, and you'll be good to go. So this was the 1947 decision. Um, and this is what was in place uh, until 1983. I want to point out another thing from the 1947 CCAR convention. So at the same time, that the, uh, at the same convention where they make this policy that we are finding this way to, uh, in their view, respectfully allow these children of, um, uh, of mixed marriages to become part of the Jewish people. Uh, and we're welcoming them, we're, or, you know, we're not gonna kick them out and we're not gonna say they're not Jewish or they need to convert or anything like that. The same time that they're kind of opening the tent, they reaffirm the, a 1909 resolution on interfaith marriages. 
And that 1909 resolution said mixed marriages are contrary to the tradition of the Jewish religion and should therefore be discouraged by the American rabbinate. So, you know, one step forward in one sense and a step back or at least standing in place on the other of, you know, we want to make some change, but at the same time, we really do not think intermarriages are good. Um, we, we disapprove of them. Um, and if you're curious, uh, if you were, from my research at least, my understanding, if you were a rabbi in 1947, you could officiate at an interfaith marriage. Uh, it's not like you would be kicked out of the union or there was a resolution that said you're not allowed to. But the position of the movement was, you know, we, we'll, we'll let our members make their own choices, but our opinion is they shouldn't be doing this. That's kind of, uh, that was the, the, the lay of the land at the time. Um, okay. And again, if, you know, you can't find a, a rabbi that's going to marry you, um, yeah, you could either, if you plan to have a truly interfaith house and a different uh, clergy member of the other faith, or you know, you can have a civil marriage. You can go to the city hall or, or the courthouse, wherever uh, it is in your municipality, and, and get married that way. <clears throat> um, also, this is a, just an interesting tidbit um, I wanted to, to just to share. So, in 1953, there was uh, sorry, in my notes I have the gentleman's name, uh, but I can't recall off. Uh, top of my head, but he did a survey of 785 American rabbis in the reform and conservative movement. So I don't know how many rabbis were around at the time, but this is a pretty large sampling of them. Um, and he found that uh, based on their reports that uh, there are about 1,500 to 1,750 conversions per year, not among the survey participants, but among all the rabbis. Um, so extrapolate it out just like you would do with a survey. You take a sample and then you make your conclusions. So in America, in the United States, there was about 1,700 at the most, seven, under 2,000 conversions each year. 95% of those conversions were uh, as a result uh, of marriage, either uh, immediately after a marriage or immediately before a marriage. Um, I suppose it might not be immediately after a marriage, right? It might be 10 years later, you decide to um, uh, convert to Judaism um, on account of your spouse. But 95% were uh, had something to do with, with marriage, which means, this blows my mind, hopefully, uh, I imagine it will blow yours too, that means there's 75 to 87, I did the math on this, non-marriage-related conversions per year nationwide. In 1953, there were less than 100 people in the country who said, you know what, I think I want to be Jewish. Um, here at Temple, we are uh, likely going to do about 20 conversions this year. Um, which is about what we do, uh, uh, it's about typical for us the last few years. So just now at, at one synagogue, <laughs> one American synagogue, granted a large synagogue, but one synagogue, we're doing a substantial percentage of all of the conversions that were done uh, in the middle of the last century. Um, and I guess, you know, I, you can draw your own conclusions. The ones I draw from this little factoid here are that in 1953, Judaism was not quite seen as appealing. It was still based on just, I don't know, anti-Semitism in, in the larger society. Um, you know, Jew, if you were Jewish, you hopefully were able to be proud of being Jewish. Um, it was something that you were glad to be. But if you weren't Jewish, 
it's very unlikely you would ever say, gosh, that's something I want to do. Um, or uh, though I want to be like those people. Um, very, very few people. And I would just love to, to sit down with uh, some of those uh, less than 100 people and just ask, why? Um, why are you? Why are you doing something that's like a one in a million uh, uh, thing to do based on the larger population? So just a kind of a reminder of, of where we were at that time and how far we've come since then um, and how things changed. So let's jump ahead. So we went from 1953 to 1978. Um, the UAHC meeting, UAHC, sorry, I forgot to put the um, uh, spell it out, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, uh, renamed in the early 2000s to the URJ, Union for Reform Judaism, uh, but same organization, just a different name. So UAHC was the name at the time. So in 1978 is when we see a large shift. The president of the UAHC at the time was Rabbi Alex Schindler. And he said, sorry, I forgot the quote at the beginning here. Uh, the time has come for the reform movement and others, if they are so disposed, meaning other movements, gently inviting them. The time has come to carefully, to a carefully conceived outreach program aimed at all Americans who are unchurched and who are seeking religious meaning. Unchurched meaning just, I don't know, I guess we still use the word today for people who are unconnected to religion. Um, kind of a strange word in this context, I realize. Uh, meaning that this was his big push for outreach uh, of suggesting, you know, Judaism traditionally is not a proselytizing religion. Uh, we don't have a, you know, a, a theological reason or desire to make the world Jewish. Um, and, but the, the flip side of that is that, you know, there are a lot of people who think, well, if you're not born Jewish, you really can't be Jewish. And there are religions like that where there is no conversion option, but Judaism, you can. And what uh, Schindler was saying was not necessarily to go out on the streets proselytizing or start knocking on doors, but to get the word out that, you know, you can be Jewish. And if you're interested, we'd love to talk to you. Come find us and let's start. So this is when we see the, the advent of these conversion classes being offered or intro to Judaism or exploring Judaism. Um, this is where the initiative starts with him of, this, uh, of his push and you know, I don't want to oversimplify it here. He didn't just say you know a sentence and it was done. This was a major agenda item uh, of him. I'm just uh, taking out a snippet here, but he was a force for what became this outreach effort uh, to uh, for the reform movement of really going out there and, and trying to be more welcoming to all kinds of people that previously may not have felt welcomed. So, in the same meeting in 1978. Um, he said some, some of the following. As a case in point, why should a movement which from its very birth hour insisted on full equality of men and women in religious life unquestioningly, unquestioningly accept the principle that Jewish lineage is valid through the, mat, the maternal line alone? So he's questioning this idea of patrilineal descent or of matrilineal descent, whichever one. He's suggesting in a roundabout way this is, this is not what we stand for. And so he goes further. In fact, a case can be made that there is substantial support within our tradition for the validity of Jewish lineage through the paternal line. And it is this kind of possibility which we should begin energetically to explore. 
So he's suggesting it's time. And oftentimes, you know, if, if you're wondering, usually when uh, someone says, you know, this is an idea worthy of study, it's a gentle way of saying, this is never going to happen, right? <laughs> when it's referred back to committee, so to speak, uh, to use the cliche, that means it's never, you're never gonna see it again. It's never coming out of committee, uh, it's gone. Uh, but that's not what uh, Rabbi Schindler meant here, and that's not what happened. So this was actually the groundwork in 1978 for the formation of, uh, first of all, a committee committee. Really, this was serious and thought out. The committee was formed uh, upon this that would study this, and that committee ultimately is the same one that brought the resolution in 1983, uh, which was then voted on and adopted. So it really did start here, and he really did was genuine about this, and it, that's what led to uh, what happened in 1983. It wasn't just someone one day said, hey, I think it's time to change. This is how that process really got going. Um, so Let's talk about some of the aftermath of the resolution. Uh, and some of this will surprise you, some of this probably not. So the first, uh, this is the part that will likely surprise you. Uh, within progressive Judaism, progressive reform, what's the difference here in North America? We call it reform Judaism and most, if not all of the, the rest of the world outside of Canada, um, it's referred to as progressive Judaism. Um, people will say it's the same thing, but as we'll see, it's not exactly the same thing. So this came from the Israel Council of Progressive Rabbis. So our equivalent, the reform movement's equivalent, but not quite equal, uh, in Israel. If we affirm we are an integral part of the Jewish people, we cannot limit our horizons to the reform movement in North America alone. So what they are saying, and they issued this very quickly after um, the 1983 resolution was adopted. What they're saying is we don't just follow what they do over there in the States. Uh, and let me see, we'll go to the next one next. So they, and then they go on in their statement that they reject this resolution. Uh, they will not abide by it. And I should have double checked. Uh, as of a few years ago, I don't know if it's changed, but that the uh, Israeli Movement for Progressive Judaism uh, does not um, accept patrilineal descent, at least as of a few years ago. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I need to be careful because if, if that's no longer correct today, I don't want to, to say anything incorrect. But uh, you can Google it and let me know uh, if you find otherwise. But at least as of a few years ago, their position was the same as it was uh, in 1983, meaning no, we accept matrilineal Judaism only. Another example, we meet people sympathetic to us, uh, meaning sympathetic to the liberal, liberal, another word for progressive here, uh, sympathetic to our brand of Judaism. And I'm afraid that those who might join us would not do so if we embrace patrilineality. They would say, look, they don't even know the most basic Jewish traditions. And this comes from the president of the liberal Jewish movement of France. So saying, you know, in the Jewish world, there are people who are like, yeah, you know, I, I don't really agree with all the things the Orthodox movement is doing. I, I, I see what you guys are about. And, you know, OK, I can get behind that. But what he's saying is, if we were to do this, this is so precedent shattering uh, from what is considered normative Judaism for again, 2000 years almost, um, that, that, that people are gonna say, no, those aren't even Jews anymore. Uh, those people are nuts. Sorry to be a little uh, dramatic there, but that's, that's what he's getting at. Um, and I think that's my only, yeah. Uh, 
Am I only two there? But that's indicative of kind of the response throughout the the, uh, the world outside of North America. Uh, and also in Canada too, the uh, reform movement in Canada does not accept uh, patrilineal descent. And I'll share uh, a, a little more uh, of my personal story here uh, that, so I think I mentioned this in the first session that this was actually the topic of my rabbinical school thesis. Uh, we have to write a a uh, rather lengthy paper in our final year of rabbinical school. Uh, and this was the topic I chose, patrilineal descent, in part uh, because of what I shared at the beginning of this, that I'm, I'm the product of patrilineal descent. Uh, so it's always interested in me, uh, and I have that personal connection. Um, and so uh, when I was applying for uh, jobs at the end of rabbinical school, uh, we do this thing, or we did, it's changed now, but it used to be anyone who, any congregations who needed a job, that we would all converge on one campus of HUC and do this like speed dating thing where you'd get, I don't know, 25 minute, maybe there were 45 minute interviews, and then you would go to the next room and interview somewhere else um, and whatnot. And you know, they had copies of our resumes or CVs and some other stuff. And on the resume, it says what your, oh, you put what your thesis title is. And I put mine, it was patrilineal descent. Um, and so there were two uh, communities from Canada uh, that were looking for rabbis that I'd applied for and that were interested, had, uh, were interested in interviewing me. Uh, and one of them, um, in my memory at least, the very first question they asked was, uh, I see you wrote uh, your, um, your, or your writing, we're still in school at the time, you're writing your thesis on patrilineal descent. Uh, do you support patrilineal descent? And I said, well, yes, I do. Okay. Um, are you uh, the product of patrilineal descent? Well, yes, I am. Um, and there were no further questions on the topic, and I never heard back from them. Could be for all sorts of reasons, right? Uh, but I, I think that had a big one to do with it. Uh, and then the other community um, initially, and I was going through my emails here trying to remember it. And I, oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, and I'll share this. I, I won't say who they are. And I, I don't mean this in any way disparagingly, but uh, they had initially decided based upon uh, the fact that I was a patrilineal Jew uh, that. Uh, they were not going to uh, consider me for further after this first interview uh, and uh, actually had one of my mentors reach out uh, who was able to find out that that was the reason that they, they, they liked me, except they felt they couldn't go forward because I wasn't in the eyes of their movement, uh, Jewish. So um, he kind of played an intermediary and we got to this kind of bizarre, well, bizarre, uh, this resolution of I was, I was planning at the time, at the end of rabbinical school, like a lot of my classmates, I was going to mark that occasion by going to mikvah, uh, which you, know, you can go to mikvah for all kinds of things that happen in life. Uh, and we have one right here or that um, uh, is at Beth Shalom that we uh, have access to. And if you're interested, please talk to one of the rabbis here, Sally Rosenberg. Hey, Sally, if you're watching, uh, who runs our, our co-teaches our Embracing Judaism class and also uh, really runs the mikvah at Beth Shalom. Um, and so I'd been planning to go to Mark, you know, becoming a rabbi. Uh, and so this rabbi, my mentor, had negotiated this kind of uh, compromise where I was going to go to the mikvah, um, because, which I'd been planning to go to anyway, uh, and mark my end of rabbinical school. And they were going to understand my immersing in the mikvah as my conversion. 
that I was not considering to be a conversion, uh, but they would consider that as my conversion and we would be all set. Uh, and therefore I would be Jewish. Anyway, um, so that didn't happen, <laughs> um, but, uh, and I did not end up uh, going to that community either, uh, but, but just to give an example of, you know, how serious this is and how it still plays out, and this was when I was ordained in 2014, and again, I, I, I did not, I should have looked up ahead to see if it's changed, but I can't imagine that uh, it has changed since then in Canada, so still, um, and in other parts of the Jewish world, the progressive or reformed Jewish world, um, this decision is not accepted. So that's the part that may surprise you to know that we're not necessarily all on the same page uh, in that, and it shouldn't surprise you that what a bunch of rabbis in America say, we don't get to dictate what the rest of the world is gonna do. Um, and we should be okay with that, that there should be some level of autonomy uh, and we're not the ones in charge, just like, um, you know, in some bizarro world, if we found out, well, the, the rabbis of New Zealand, the reform rabbis of New Zealand all got together. So now we have to do this, or now Quorum is now gonna be observed three days earlier or something. You're like, what? No, it's not. Uh, we don't accept that. Uh, so just by way of example, uh, and now within the larger Jewish world, this is the part that I don't think will be that much of a surprise, but just to get a taste of how, uh, uh, um, a definitive uh, response was, let's say. This comes from um, the director of the Yeshiva University's rabbinical school, an orthodox uh, rabbinical school, Yeshiva University is in New York. Uh, adoption of the patrilineal principle is an eloquent statement of disassociation with the Jewish community. Meaning that the reform movement has just gone, you know, we're all on the same path and the reform movement just shot off into left field uh, is no longer, you know, it's not just another branch of Judaism, but as far as we consider it, uh, they have just left the, uh, the general tent of Judaism uh, along with the other denominations. And then from the conservative movement, uh, the former president, Rabbi Arnold Goodman, the reform movement by its unfortunate resolution has split off from normative Judaism. So essentially saying the same thing in different language, different words. Uh, and the conservative movement uh, a few years later uh, uh, felt the need to, uh, because they were like, well, I don't, I don't want anyone, or we don't want anyone to think that we're thinking this way too. So they reaffirmed that they only accept matrilineal descent and that they reject patrilineal descent. Again, a decision that still stands today. Um, I will point out, I didn't have a quote here, but the Reconstructionist movement, uh, which is a smaller movement, um, there is an essay from, from one of their leaders uh, that said, you know, what's um, uh, frustrating, I don't know what his words were, frustrating, surprising, uh, disheartening, is that we, the Reconstructionist movement, we accepted this, we accepted patrilineal descent in 1968. Right. So like, what is that, 15 years earlier? Um, we accepted it in 1968 and nobody noticed, meaning that when the reform world did this in 1983, it was national news, even in the non-Jewish world, let alone the Jewish world. This was just earth shattering. Um, it was the talk of the town for, for years. Uh, but it, when the Reconstructionist movement did it, no one noticed, no one, no one, there was no uproar. You know, the head of Yeshiva University, as far as I know, did not come up with some, uh, uh, some dismissive statement on what Reconstructionism had done. It was just completely under the radar. 
I also want to point that out, that the Reconstructionist movement, the reform movement adopted this and it was so earth shattering, but the reform movement was not the first movement to do this. So credit where credit is due, the Reconstructionist movement was the one that really went, on the, went out on the ledge first and said, we are going to break with thousands of years of precedent uh, to embrace Jews of mixed marriages with one with a Jewish father. Uh, and then shifting ahead to the 1986 CCR convention, so a few years later, three years later, uh, perhaps what was not anticipated during the debate, meaning in 1983 when they were when they adopted the resolution on patrilineal descent, perhaps what was not anticipated was the intensity of negative reaction. Uh, this came from Rabbi Jack Stern, the president of the CCAR at the time. Uh, so saying, you know, whatever we were worried about, thinking about uh, uh, when we were deciding how to vote on this, you know, we didn't expect that, that the rest of the world would react so strongly with so much anger uh, at, at this ruling. Which with the hindsight of history, right? Uh, you know, I look at this and be like, really? But then again, that's because I have the hindsight of history, of knowing how it happened. So let's take him at his word that it wasn't clear at the time um, how, how dramatic uh, uh, or what the implications were going to be. So he says that, that acknowledgement that we have really burned some bridges uh, as a result of doing this, but goes on, any consideration of rescinding the resolution on patrilineality is entirely beyond the realm of possibility. So despite the blowback we are getting from the rest of the Jewish world and from progressive Jews outside of America even, remember, um, despite all of this that, that's coming our way, uh, we are not going to change our mind. And there was talk, believe me, um, that in these years, of rabbis, either who didn't vote for it the first time, uh, it wasn't a unanimous decision in 1983, and maybe from those that voted for it but weren't strong supporters of it, or maybe they were strong supporters of it, but they changed their mind. But the point is there was talk among reform rabbis of, you know what, um, no, this was a bad idea. Let's, let's, let's think about this again and take this back. Um, so there it was a possibility, right? So if enough people say that, then anything can be taken back. All he needs a vote. But the president, uh, sorry, let me put his name back up there, of uh, the CCR at the time, uh, very forcefully said uh, a few years later, absolutely not. Uh, we are not going back. And this is here to stay. So that leaves us with the question, was it worth it? And as a reminder, the 1947 resolution allowed for a quiet conversion uh, through essentially religious school attendance. So in lieu of a Beit Din and a mikvah, we're going to just use your attendance forms from religious school. Uh, and um, you know, I'm simplifying there, but that's basically what they were doing. And we're gonna say that that is equivalent to conversion or that is conversion, which doesn't look like conversion, but we now call that conversion. Uh, and we're not going to tell the kids. Uh, we're not going to tell the parents. No one's really going to know. Uh, and, you know, that way it's kind of almost a legal, a legal fiction, so to speak. Uh, we've now solved this problem of kids who we don't technically aren't Jewish, but we have found a way to make them Jewish without making, putting any um, hindrance on them or any burden on them. They're not even going to know. Uh, and by the way, uh, in my research for my thesis, I don't remember which movement it was, but there are stories, you know, 
the same thing happens in other movements. And it's the same uh, issue of, of rabbis who, you know, what, what are you going to say to a, a seven-year-old kid? Uh, you know, yeah, you come here every week or you're, you know, whatever, but you know, no, you're not actually Jewish. Like no one wants to say that. No one wants, that, that's horrible. Um, I'm really grateful. And this is part of the reason I'm in a movement where I don't ever have to say that because I would never say that. Um, and I feel for colleagues um, who, who don't have that ability or that discretion based on their, um, their, their um, ideological leanings to be able to do that because they don't like it. Um, but so one example I wanted to share was like, was a, a rabbi who prior to this uh, would solve this by taking a field trip to the mikvah as just part of like the, the, the bar bat mitzvah process. Um, I guess it's not a field trip, right? You only go to the mikvah one at a time, but whatever, either require uh, as part of uh, the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah prep process that everyone goes to the mikvah to have a Jewish experience uh, before. And, you know, same example, right? I, I, and they're not doing it because they want everyone to have an experience with the mikvah. They're doing it just to, uh, you know, convert uh, all the kids without letting them know that's what they're doing. And therefore everyone does it. No one actually knows the real reason why. And it, you know, solves the problem. Uh, and from the minutes, I wanna, as we wrap up, uh, just share, uh, during uh, all the minutes were recorded, uh, you can read through them if you would like. Uh, but during the debate, uh, there was a rabbi who said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Meaning, this was working just fine. The rest of the Jewish world didn't either know what we were up to or they weren't bothered by it because it was so kind of a wonky workaround that we were all fine with it. And at the end of the day, the kids coming out of our religious schools were seen as just as Jewish as everyone else. There were no questions. They had no issues in their life as a result of this, unless they try to marry an Orthodox person or they want to uh, make uh, Aliyah to Israel. Or, you know, I can think of a few other things uh, where maybe they actually would uh, be in for a rude awakening to find out, wait, <laughs> despite all of this, no, you, someone's going to tell them later in life, you're not Jewish and they're not going to have any, uh, they won't understand what's happening. Um, or why, or how they could get through religious school without anyone mentioning this to them. But in general, for the vast majority, they're not going to have any issues. So the rabbi says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And this has the benefit, if we stick with this, of not having the rest of the Jewish world hate us. Um, so, you know, and you may be sympathetic to that. You know, it's pragmatic. Um, it was working just fine seem to be working fine for 40 something years. But then what is the issue um, or why I will I'll stop sharing my screen right now uh, and, and just give my final thoughts as we uh, as I wrap up here that I think it was broke, um, that it is insulting uh, and um, uh, delegitimizing, uh, patronizing. To, to say that I'm going to convert you through a ceremony that's not conversion uh, and that you won't even be aware of um, for my own benefit so that I don't have to deal with the blowback um, from everyone else. And so that yes, you're accepted, but not enough that I'm willing to stick my neck out there and say, no, you're actually just as Jewish as anyone else. Doesn't matter what my colleagues and other movements are, are going to say or think or write. 
so I would say that no, uh, it's not as, um, it, that it is broke. And that if we do want to follow Rabbi Schindler's uh, uh, call to be uh, the movement of outreach, which has been with Rabbi Rick Jacobs and audacious hospitality expanded on, uh, of really truly welcoming people, then we have to actually say those words and we have to be willing to take stands that are, we know are going to be unpopular uh, and say, you know, it's not just that we will, you know, yeah, we, we welcome all people regardless of, of whatever race, gender, their, their religious background. Um, but no, we actually have to put that in writing and, and be willing to stand up and say that even if we know that other movements are not going to appreciate it. So, you know, I think that it's uh, really for me and I shared my biases at the beginning, right? Uh, so take it for what it's worth, but it's something that I, makes me really proud of the movement that they stuck with this deeply unpopular decision uh, because what they were saying is we recognize you as a legitimate Jewish person for who you are without making you, without these secret little, you know, legal fictions um, to make it all work out okay. But like, no, we're not gonna do that to you and we're not going to, um, yeah, be patronizing uh, in that way. Uh, and we're not gonna tell you you need to convert to a religion that you already are by our view. What are some of the consequences of this though? And there, there are real consequences to this day. Like I said, the reform movement and the reconstructionist movement are the two who recognize Jews uh, of patrilineal descent, uh, but the other movements do not. And again, this is North America or really the United States outside of the United States. It's, I can't say definitively, but you know, it's certainly not accepted by all of the progressive or liberal movements outside of the United States. Um, if any, I'm not exactly sure right now, um, but it creates issues uh, that there were attempts uh, in the, the 80s, just as there are now, but uh, of projects that were multi-denominational. Uh, there was an example of a Beit Deen, meaning a community conversion program in Denver, Colorado that had Orthodox and Reform and conservative rabbis who were all participating in this. Uh, and they had several hundred students going through and the people who came through the Beit Deen would be seen as Jewish and their, their certificates were signed by all denominations and they were seen as Jewish, whether they went to the Orthodox synagogue or the Reform synagogue. Um, and it was really, a, it was radical. Um, this doesn't, isn't something that really happens. Um, being able to, uh, to do a, a Beit Deen where all the branches come together. Um, and the Denver Bay Dean uh, disbanded in 1983. And that is not a, that is not a coincidence. Um, that is because the rift became untenable. Uh, and politically, even if the local Orthodox rabbis, I don't know, but I'll presume that they respected their colleagues, but they were getting so much pushback and vitriol from their colleagues outside of Denver saying, how can you work with these people after what they've done that they could not. Um, and that was the end of that. And so a lot of, you know, imagine what could have been uh, in the name of Jewish unity that just never happened, either was disbanded or never came to be as a result of this radical shift here. Um, some of the other issues, like I said, that um, you're talking to a rabbi uh, or listening to a rabbi uh, who's not even seen as Jewish by uh, a lot of the Jewish world. Um, 
And that is an issue in, in a lot of ways. And that does create issues here. Um, I, I'd be lying if I said it didn't, uh, but that, that's the consequence for standing up and for doing something that you know will be unpopular and not accepted by others. But uh, at the end of the day, ultimately, I, I think that it's something that we ought to be proud of um, by the reform movement. Do I think other movements are going to come along? I don't, uh, or at least it's hard for me to imagine that, um, but maybe that's okay. Uh, I don't know, I'll leave you with that. But I, I, to wrap up, um, thank you for joining me on this journey for the last two weeks. Uh, and you know, if you, like I said at the beginning of uh, our hour together, if you have some things you're trying to work through with your own Jewish identity, your own Jewish status, uh, either related to patrilineal, matrilineal, or you know, not, um, you know, I, I would love to talk to you about it. Um, it's not my job to tell you what to do uh, or tell you if you're Jewish or not. I'm going to tell you you're Jewish likely, but still, um, but I can definitely, I would love to listen because I know, you know, one of the, one of the hallmarks of being Jewish is having the guilt of feeling you're not Jewish enough, uh, no matter how Jewish you actually are. Uh, so, you know, I, that's, that is a common feeling and that isn't one that you should suffer from or anyone should have to suffer from uh, without a chance for some other perspective. So I'd love to talk to anyone. Uh, uh, you can uh, find my, my email on the Temple website. Uh, it's rabbijeremy at timemphis.org. Uh, or again, you can find it online or you can call the Temple. I'd love to talk. So thank you so much uh, for joining me tonight. And uh, yeah, take care. Have a wonderful night, everyone. Bye.